Welcome everybody um, to the DNA conference. Who was it thought of that as an idea, as a theme for a conference? Like DNA. You think it's great, obviously, I can tell. The reaction is so amazing. Deoxyribonucleic acid. That's what DNA stands for. Um, you probably know that it, 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 it is contained in every cell in your body. And it's a molecule which contains a set of coded instructions to build a you. That's all I understand. I did history at university. I don't understand any of the rest of it, okay? I didn't do molecular biology, so I don't even know any more than that. But you'll be relieved to know that today we're using it as a metaphor. We're thinking about the DNA of a Christian. So what would that be? Well, it turns out that when God was thinking about the idea of DNA, he had an Irish moment. I say that because of what DNA does for us, okay? Here's the Irish part about it. DNA makes us all the same, and DNA makes us all different. That's why it's Irish, okay? And that's what I want to think about today in the two sessions that I have. The fact, first of all, that DNA makes us all the same, and then secondly, that DNA makes us all different. And what is the significance of that? In this session, we're thinking about how DNA makes us all the same. What is it that makes you a human being and not a chimpanzee, although with some of us there might be some suspicions, or a mouse, or a fruit fly, or E. coli? What is it that makes you a human being and none of those things? The answer is DNA. Of course, we share some of that DNA with other created things. For example, with a chimpanzee, we share 96% of our DNA. And for some people, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> with, a mouse, with a mouse, we share 92% of our DNA. So you, maybe you want to think about that the next time you set a trap for one. With a fruit fly, 36%. And with E. coli, 18%. It's good to know that we're not just so similar to a virus. But 99% of the DNA of every human being on the planet is exactly the same, 99%. It's an incredible truth, isn't it? That you are more like your enemy than anything else in the universe. The Bible talks about our Lord himself, it says in Hebrews 2 and 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. It means that you and I share 99% of our DNA with our master hollows out a little bit the excuses we sometimes make and say, well, of course, it was all right. It was easy for Jesus to do the stuff that Jesus did. Harder for me. Yeah, this would be the Jesus I share 99% of my DNA with. Of course, it also means that we share 99% of our DNA with Jesus' mother, Mary. 
which raises significant questions about why we make such fundamental distinctions in the church between men and women, but that's a question for another day, and I'm not going there right now. So if there is a Christian DNA, it would mean that we would all be the same. And the Scriptures have a way of referring to church, which does indeed make us one. Revelation 21, verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This picture in Revelation 21 is one of the same group of people John sees in Revelation chapter 7 drawn from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. And there's so many in that picture that he sees in Revelation chapter 7 that he says no human being would ever be able to count them. The number of that people is that same poetic and prophetic number that God gave to Abraham all those generations before when he said to him, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. And every one of those people, every one of them, 99% the same, and so able to be described as one person, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So what would our DNA be like if we were to be the bride of Christ? Now, I realize that there's an immediate problem here at a men's conference, because you're never going to be a bride. Not such a problem for some of us, maybe, because at times we may have been described by people at school or elsewhere on a football team as a big woman, so therefore we might be able to grasp a little bit better what the meaning of what would be like to be a bride, you know. Um, When people used to go to record shops to buy CDs and stuff like that, you know, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember going to a record shop to buy a CD and not downloading it from iTunes or something like that. When there used to be record shops to go into, my son, who's leading worship here today, said to me on a number of occasions, why is it that every time you go into a record shop, you go to the women's section? <laughs> I just like that kind of music, okay? So maybe for some of us, it might be a little bit easier to understand what it might feel like to be a bride than for others, but basically, you're going to struggle with it a bit, I'm going to assume. So if we're going to under- understand what it is that makes us all the same as believers, we're going to have to understand what it means to be a bride, which takes us to a story in Genesis chapter 24, which is what I want to think about. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham is an old man. Nothing new there. Abraham seems to be an old man from the first time you meet him much earlier in Genesis. But anyway, Abraham is old. But he hasn't yet sorted out the issue of his son Isaac's marriage to a suitable bride. So he commissions his servant Eliezer to return to the home he had left behind to find a wife for Isaac. Eliezer travels with 10 camels laden with gifts for the lucky woman to Aram Naharim in northwest Mesopotamia to a city called Nahor. When he gets there, he stops at a spring in the early evening and he prays. And he asked God to guide him to Isaac's future bride by a simple test. He will ask the young women coming to fill water jars for a drink. And if one of them says yes 
and gives him a drink, but also offers to get water for his camels to drink, then that will be the one. And then we read in Genesis 24, verse 15, before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After he, she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. You just love the way God does that, don't you? He hadn't actually finished his prayer when Rebecca came out to gather water from the spring. But the servant had to be sure. So he asked the girl who she is, and she tells him, in verse 26, then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. It follows a lengthy summary of the introductions which follow between Eliezer and the family that he has come to visit, and he shares the purpose of his visit with Rebecca's family. And then he asks for Rebecca's hand in marriage for his master's son. And we read in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. And then it's like Christmas. Eliezer brings out the gifts that he has carried on the camels to get there, and everybody gets something. But for Rebecca, it's the gold and silver jewelry and the clothes. There's feasting and partying late into the night. And the following day, Eliezer is anxious to get home, but his hosts are anxious to delay the departure of their much-loved daughter and sister. Then comes the bit of the story that turns this beautiful young woman into a bride. Verse 57, then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. If we want to be part of the bride of Christ, we will each individually need to respond to Jesus as Rebecca did to Isaac. Something happened inwardly and outwardly in Rebecca's life. And that's what I want to think about for a moment or two. If we're going to figure out what it would mean to be part of the bride of Christ, what, what would be exactly the same in all of us if we were to respond to Jesus Christ and become part of his people? What would be the same? Here are the two things that happened in Rebecca's life. The first one is this. She said yes. She said yes to him. I think if you acted towards your son or daughter in the way Abraham and Bethuel did towards their children, there would be hell to pay. True? 
Like if you just decided that you would go ahead and arrange a wedding for your son without telling him that you were going to do it, and then if you sent a servant away and he came to somebody else's house and their parents made arrangements for that girl to marry your son, basically without her being consulted either, it wouldn't work out very well, would it? And this union bears all the hallmarks of the kind of arranged marriage that is the subject of legal concern in the UK right now in regard to families originating, especially in the subcontinent. This is the kind of thing that they're trying to stop happening. There's no indication that Abraham consulted Isaac, his special son. Never asked him, is this what you would want? He just sent Eliezer to do it. And in the initial meeting between Eliezer and Rebekah's family, there's no indication that Rebekah was consulted about the arrangement either. They just said, the Lord is in it. Go, take her. That's fine. But then there comes the moment in the story when Rebekah gets to decide what she will do. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, will you go with this man? Why should she? Why should she go? Right now, she's in an amazing situation. She had received beautiful gifts. Camels carry different loads depending on the breed of camel and the age of the animal, but it's reasonable to assume that the 10 camels Eliezer traveled with could carry more than 400 kilos or about 900 pounds each. Now, some of that will have been food and the other necessities that Eliezer and the other folks who were with him would have needed for the long, long journey that they were taking. But much of what those camels were carrying will have been the expensive gifts that Abraham sent. And at 900 pounds a camel, that's a lot of gifts. There was no suggestion that she would have to hand the gifts back if she said no. Ancient hospitality would have precluded that. They were gifts they were given, irrespective of her answer. In, in addition to that, she had the boost of knowing that she had been chosen. This was a devout family. And the general reaction to the request of Eliezer was that, quote, this was from the Lord. God's hand was in this. Rebecca was chosen not just by Eliezer the servant. In fact, not even by Eliezer the servant because no doubt he told the family about the, the prayer that he had prayed and the test that he had given the Lord. And so basically this whole situation was God's moving, God's doing. And she could enjoy the kudos of having been chosen and she could enjoy the expensive gifts that came with it but stay where she was. Or she could give her heart to this man. As Fuchsia Pickett puts it in her book, Walking in the Spirit, these gifts did not obligate her to leave her home. But to become the bride of Isaac, she had to choose to be chosen. To become the bride of Isaac, she had to choose to be chosen. It's easy for us to bask in the light of the choice of God. Loads of people here are from a Presbyterian background. They have a generally Calvinistic theology. They rejoice in the fact 
that God chooses. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Chosen and gifted by God, isn't it? That's exactly what Rebecca's situation was, chosen and gifted, just as Jesus said. And that means for many of us, we just sit comfortable in the fellowship of the church and in our familiar surroundings and pursuits. We enjoy the notion of the choice of God and all the gifts and mercies that He makes freely available to us, but we just sit where we are. Nothing really changes in our lives. As Fuchsia Pickett goes on to say, yes, they were chosen by God, but they had never chosen to separate themselves unto their God and be cleansed of their unbelief so they could fulfill his promises. Do you remember the scene in Shrek? I'm kind of shocked that Shrek the Halls didn't make it into the top 10, but anyway. <laughs> Do you remember in, in Shrek, the first movie in the series, okay, Shrek is in his swamp, and the swamp is full of fairy tale creatures, and he really doesn't want them there, and he needs to get rid of them, but he doesn't know where Lord Farquaad lives, so he needs somebody to direct him to Duloc where he can go and, and strike up some sort of deal with Lord Farquaad to get all these fairy tale creatures out of his swamp. And so he's looking for a volunteer. He's looking for somebody who will come with him to get him where he needs to go. And he's looking around this bunch of fairy tale creatures, and at behind them all, there's Donkey, and he's jumping up and down like this. Pick me, pick me. And he keeps jumping up and down behind everybody else. He's the guy who wants to go. He's the one guy Shrek doesn't want to take with him. See, Donkey chose to be chosen. He wanted to go on the adventure. He wanted to be part of the deal. And Rebecca chose to be chosen and it wasn't like a Hollywood movie, okay? So there weren't any kind of blurred lenses and quiet music playing in the background and all that kind of stuff. She didn't even know who Isaac was. She'd never met him. She'd never cast an eye on him. She didn't know what he looked like. She didn't know anything about him at all. But at that moment, she gave herself to him when she said yes. Something happened in her heart, which later blossomed and grew when they met. But she gave herself up front to that relationship before she even knew who Isaac really was. Remember what Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have to choose to be chosen. It's in the DNA of a believer. And I think men especially struggle with this because we're men. We don't talk about love, we don't do intimacy, we hide our feelings. So we don't talk about stuff like this. We have to be the bride of Christ. Well, we don't even really want to think about that very much. And yet, you know, was there ever a greater man's man in all the stories in the New Testament than Peter? And yet the funny thing is, if that's true, that he, he really is and was a man's man, isn't it interesting that it was to him and not to any of his many female followers that Jesus had this conversation? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, 
you know that I love you. He had to choose to be chosen. You can't be part of the bride unless you feel like that about the groom. You can't be part of the bride unless you feel like that about the groom. Because that's the deal, isn't it? I often think about the fact that John Newton's beautiful hymn, you know how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Can the 18th century was a brilliant time to write hymns because God the Spirit was a work in the church and all those kind of songs from that period all talk about the experience of what it is like to actually have an intimate relationship with God. And Newton's hymn, you know, but how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. You know, it's music to the ear and all the rest of it. And then there's that verse which goes like this. If you sing it out of mission praise, who sings out of mission praise anymore? But if you did, okay. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Except that wasn't what Newton wrote. Newton wrote, Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend. But we're uncomfortable with that, so we change husband to brother. But the point about it is that if the DNA of the Christian faith makes us all the same, the only way we can actually continue in this faith is to feel about the groom the way the bride does. We need to get over ourselves. We need to get over ourselves because we have to choose to be chosen. It is not good enough simply to kind of just be comfortable in the radiant sunshine of the choice of God, of the mercy and love that God has offered us in Jesus Christ, to have made some sort of initial response to that, you know, and to be comfortable with our mates and our friends in, in, in the worship of God. It won't do. It won't do. Rebecca could have stayed with the gifts. You know, she could have hung around with her family and all that was familiar to her. Or she had to choose to be chosen. She had to give her heart. We need to give our hearts when I became a Christian, it was a phrase that was used frequently. I don't hear it so much now. When I was a boy of eight and I gave my life to Christ, that's what they told me I did. They told me I gave my life to Christ. It wasn't my own anymore. It didn't belong to me. It wasn't about my ambitions, my plans, what I wanted to do anymore. It wasn't my life anymore because when I gave my life to Jesus, that's what that meant and that, that's what it means. And that's exactly what Rebecca did that day. She chose to be chosen. She said yes. There's a whole lot of guys in this room need to say yes, a proper yes, not the yes you think you once said, but the actual yes which says yes. She said yes to him, but then the second thing she did was this. She went to him. If something happened in Rebecca's heart, something followed in her outward life. Genesis 24 Verse 61, it says, Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Fuchsia Pickett, who I've already quoted a couple of times, sees the work of Eliezer to be like the work of the Holy Spirit. She says, The entire work of the Holy Spirit is related to his divine purpose of bringing home the bride of Christ. He didn't come simply to help us cope with life or to bless us with spiritual gifts. I love that. 
The entire work of the Holy Spirit is related to his divine purpose of bringing home the bride of Christ. He didn't come simply to help us cope with life or to bless us with spiritual gifts. So Eliezer was only released from his commission when Rebecca was in Isaac's arms. And that could only happen if Rebecca went with Eliezer, stayed beside him, and allowed him to determine her steps to the home of her groom. Outwardly, her life would change. Everything would be different because she would leave her home and her family, travel to a country she had never been in, married to a man she had never met. The whole of her future now was going to be completely different from her past. Paul talks about this as a key feature of the Christian life, as part of its DNA. In Galatians 5, since we live by the Spirit, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's what Rebecca had to do. She had to go with Eliezer. She had to go wherever he took her. She didn't know where she was going. So she had to go with him. That was the deal. And we need to keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. That's part of the DNA of the Christian life, not just to say yes, but also to go with the Spirit. And that's not easy, and it certainly won't happen unless, first of all, our heart is changed. But once our heart is changed, we want to please Him in obedience. Bill Johnson has a really brilliant way of talking about this. I'm going to quote now from Bill Johnson, so any Anglicans, cover your ears right now, okay? Okay, didn't get that, fine, all right. (laughs) Bill Johnson says that if there's a dove sitting on your shoulder and you don't want the dove to fly away, then every move you make will be made with the dove in mind. If you want to go with the Holy Spirit, you want Him to lead your life and guide your life and bring you ultimately to that destination which is before us all, that all of us get to be brought home ultimately as the bride of Christ, then the whole of our lives need to be determined by what we need to do to keep in step with the Spirit. And Rebecca leaves with Eliezer to go and be with Isaac. It was a time-worn path. Throughout all the generations of the lives of the people of God, this is what keeps happening over and over and over again. Her great uncle had already walked this path. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Get up and go, God says to Abraham. And generations later, so would some Galilean, Galilean fishermen after an adventure of fishing uh, after a night of lack of success and then finding success, as Jesus commands them and instructs them, we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, so they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. There's the same pattern again. They beached their boats, left everything, and went with Jesus. And the great apostle himself, Philippians 3, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. 
Somebody said to me recently about their wedding day. They've been married for a long time, too. They said to me about their wedding day. You know, they said, on my wedding day, I felt such a sense of responsibility for my parents on the very day I should have been leaving and cleaving to someone else. And that's the problem for so many of us, you know. We haven't gone. We haven't gone. We haven't moved. Not really since we made a decision, since we counted ourselves to be believers. The DNA of a believer is not just about giving ourselves to another, but also about leaving others behind. And you know what, guys? There are far too many commitments in our lives. There are far too many commitments in our lives. They take up our time. They consume our resources. They determine our behavior. When our outward lives should continually reflect our commitment to Christ. I know, I know that in all of our commitments, we can demonstrate our loyalty to Jesus Christ. But you know what? There are some commitments we could well do without. And if we are to be part of his bride, then individually we need to leave some things behind in our Ram Naharim. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city but we are looking for the city that is to come. Here we do not have an enduring city. We are looking for the city that is to come. You know what, guys? I think we have lost almost all sense of that. I think we have lost almost all sense of that. Everything in our lives is about the here and now, about receiving justice and reward and satisfaction and happiness in the here and now. But the DNA of the believer is fixed on another city. Rebecca's future was in Palestine and not in Iraq. I encounter this all the time in ministry. I see it all the time in the lives even of good people, decent people, you know, Christian people, leaders. Especially where I come across it is at times of bereavement. You know that even in Christian families, I meet devastation at the end of a long and and full life. I, I know this is hard, you know, I know it's hard. My father-in-law is ill right now. He's in hospital. He's dying. 94 years of age. He's lived with my wife and I for the last five years. Both my own mom and my dad are gone. I wish they weren't. I wish they were still here. There's loads of times I would love to have talked to my dad about stuff that has been happening. You know, things have been going on in my life that I could have talked over with him. My mom, who was a much bigger influence in some ways in my life than my dad. I miss both of them desperately. I wish they were here. You know, I find a level of devastation in people's lives, you know, about those human attachments that seem to me to not quite fit, to not quite fit with lives that have left and cleaved to God and and who are seeking to follow him and who now see rewards and blessings, not in this city, but in the only city that will ever endure, and that's the one to come. I said a moment or two ago that my mom was a massive influence in my life, and, and it's only a few years since she died, and I really, really miss her in lots of different ways, you know. 
But I, I did the tribute at her funeral. And I finished the tribute with these words. I said, for this amazing woman, we give our thanks to God today and not without hope. Of all the many expressions of sympathy and support we have received in the last few days, one Facebook message said it all. It came from Adam Smith, a friend of mine who works for the BBC. It was a simple assurance of prayer and a quote from the master himself which expresses all our hope. And this was the quote, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And I went on. We believe that at five past five on Tuesday morning, the trumpet sounded to welcome mum home to a life more full than her 85 years here. Grace has triumphed. Hallelujah. The trajectory of my mum's life was towards an appointment with the groom. So where was the sadness when she had finally made it? Loads of us need to get on a journey away from what we wear to what we need to become if we are to be part of the bride. And that entails two really simple things. On the one hand, it entails saying yes. It entails saying yes. It entails giving your heart, giving your life to Jesus Christ, not just some small section of it. Not just making yourself feel a bit more comfortable in the company of your Christian friends that worship on a Sunday and enjoying the fellowship of the church and all that kind of stuff, which is all good and there's nothing wrong with any of it. Thank God for it all. But we need to say yes to Jesus. We are to be part of the bride of Christ. We need to give ourselves to him wholly and entirely. And that means leaving and cleaving. That means secondly, going to him. It means, secondly, seeing the greatest thing that's going to happen to us, not something that's going to happen to us in this life. Hopefully, there'll be loads of great stuff. But the greatest thing that's going to happen to us is not going to happen to us in this life. It's going to happen to us when we finally, as part of the bride, meet the groom. When we look at his face as we sang in that song, beginning of the worship today, transfixed by it. Isn't that time we started to live like that was true? Like as if what God is doing and the coming of his kingdom is more important than the kingdoms of this world, the attachments and commitments and so on that we make in this world and in this life. Isn't it time to set some of those things aside and really start a journey? Band are gonna come and, and lead us in a couple of songs. First song, you can, you can join in and, and so on and sing along with it, but I, I want you to kind of just reflect during that song because before we do the second song, um, which is the stand, which is a, a song which expresses a, a willingness to stand and be counted for our Savior and our Lord, then I'm, I'm just going to take a, after Dave finishes leading the first, first song, I'm going to come up and I'm going to encourage you in a, in a particular way to respond during that second song. If you want to make this the day when you really say yes, really say yes and the day in which you go to Christ you start on a journey it will take you away from loads of earthly commitments and ambitions and concerns and lead you into having one trajectory in your life one trajectory the trajectory towards becoming part of the bride of Christ marriage to the Lamb when Jesus comes back